Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled The Revolutionary War, Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide, The Southern Campaign. In the last years of the war, the British shifted their military focus to the South, and the Southern War is what is supposedly depicted in the movie The Patriot, starring Mel Gibson. Although unlike the movie, there is no planter in South Carolina who had freed their slaves and let them work on their plantation. Again, memory versus history. The British plan was to attract the support of slaves and loyalists in the region. But instead, the Southern Campaign devolved into a brutal civil war. This was a vicious conflict between Patriot and Tory civilians that utilized guerrilla warfare in violent reprisals against the Patriots and the British and Loyalists. Many people were executed who surrendered, and towns were burned. The British reprisals and plundering of the backcountry convinced many Georgians and Carolinians to join the Patriot clause, and by November 1778, the British attacked and eventually captured Savannah, Georgia. The next year, royal civil government was restored in Georgia. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Town Destroyer. Meanwhile up north, I had said that there were no more major campaigns between the British and the Patriots, but there were fights between native tribes and the American government. On November 11th, 1778, the Cherry Valley Massacre occurred when the British and Hondasane, also called the Iroquois, attacked a village of Cherry Valley in central New York. In the chaos, 14 soldiers were killed and 11 captured, and 30 villagers were killed and 30 taken captive. In response to this massacre, Washington ordered a detachment of 4,000 American troops to go into the Ohio country and attack the Iroquois in what is known as the Sullivan Expedition under General Sullivan. In 1779, the American detachment destroyed between 20 and 40 Indian villages and the once formidable presence of the Iroquois in the Ohio country never recovered. For this, the Iroquois named Washington the Town Destroyer. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Indians and the Revolution. At the start of the war, there were 200,000 Native Americans in 85 different nations living east of the Mississippi River. Most viewed the revolution as a type of family quarrel between the British and their colonies, and they thus sought to stay out of it but many Indians eventually got pulled into the conflict. Most of those who fought in the Revolution ultimately sided with the British, who gave them gifts and tried to keep the Americans off their land. It probably also didn't help the Americans that in the Declaration of Independence, it said that the king had, quote, excited domestic insurrection among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions, end quote. So, as you probably guessed, that's a not very good way of trying to get Indian allies on your side. However, despite this claim, other tribes were split down the middle over who to support, and this in turn caused an Indian civil war among some groups, like the Iroquois. The point is that the memory of the war conceals the Native Americans who fought with the Americans. And thus, in the colonist eyes, these Indians could never fully be American after the war, and the country would embark 
on over a hundred years of native removal and Indian wars. Please advance to the next slide entitled African Americans and the Revolution. Another group that is not usually talked about in the Revolution are African Americans. They were listening when white Southerners proclaimed liberty and accused the British of trying to enslave them. Slaves wisely took advantage of the revolutionary rhetoric and the chaos of the war. Between 80 to 100,000 African American slaves ran away from their master during the revolution, and about 20,000 of them fought with the British in return for freedom. Thus, the American Revolution is probably the single largest slave revolt in American history besides the Civil War. This is another example of one of those internal revolutions during the war. Congress had initially declared all blacks, free or slave, ineligible to serve in the American military. But when Lord Dunmore issued his proclamation in 1775, Washington became convinced that the war's outcome depended on, quote, which side can arm the Negroes the fastest, end quote. From November 12, 1775, until February 23, 1778, African Americans were barred from joining the Continental Army under the orders of Washington. This is despite the fact that African Americans had fought for the cause, like Prince Easterbrook at Lexington and Salem Poor at Bunker Hill. After Valley Forge, Congress allowed the enlistment of free blacks and 5,000 freed African Americans fought for the Americans during the Revolutionary War. The most famous of this was the 1st Rhode Island, who was highly regarded as one of the best regiments in the Continental Army, and was also an integrated regiment. And this will only happen one other time, in 1812, until the U.S. military is formally desegregated in 1946. Again, the long arm of history, and the unfortunate continuity of oppression in American history. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Year of Reversals. 1780 was a bad year for the Americans. In May, the British captured Charleston, South Carolina, by Lord Cornwallis, and over 5,500 American troops surrendered, making it the greatest American loss of troops in the entire war. In July, 6,000 French troops under Count Rochambeau landed in Rhode Island, and though this is a good thing, they would unfortunately remain there for the entire year. You see, Washington wanted him to join them for a decisive attack on the British at New York City, but Rochambeau refused to commit his army until the arrival of the French Navy, which was fighting in the Caribbean. Thus, the Americans would have to wait. Also, in August, Benedict Arnold took command of West Point, New York, the linchpin of the Hudson Corridor. And before I go into the story of the traitor Arnold, let's talk about the war hero, Benedict Arnold. Arnold was the grandson of a former governor who had been murdered by his young wife. Arnold wanted to show himself off. He lived lavishly. He wore fine clothes. He built a mansion, and he threw money around beyond his means. Arnold saw the Revolutionary War as his patriotic duty, but also an opportunity to get famous and rich. When he heard of Lexington and Concord, his town of New Haven, Connecticut declared neutrality. In response, he stormed the neutrality meeting, demanded the keys to the arsenal, and when the committee refused, he said his troops would break down the doors to get to the weapons. Ultimately, the committee gave in, 
and he took the arms and men to Massachusetts, where he served honorably. He ended up funding his soldiers out of his own pocket, and he took part in the taking of Fort Ticonderoga, the invasion of Quebec, and he decisively won the battle at Saratoga. Despite these accolades, Congress refused to promote him because he had the gall to ask for it. In addition, Connecticut already had enough general officers, so he had to wait. And this just stuck in his craw. So again, Arnold did his duty. He served well, but administrative issues passed him over for command. Arnold was also routinely insulted by other officers and accused of abusing his position. As a result, Arnold had enough and began plotting for several months to turn over West Point to the British in return for money and a commission in the British Army. In September of 1780, Arnold's contact with the British Army, Major John Andre, was stopped by American militia and searched. Andre was detained and later hanged as a spy, and Arnold escaped to New York City and served as a British general for the rest of the war, and he ultimately burned down the city of Norfolk. Thus, Benedict Arnold became synonymous with traitor. The point is that had Arnold died at Saratoga, he probably would have been known as one of America's greatest generals. And so it illustrates to us that the movie Dark Knight was right. If you live long enough, you eventually see yourself become the villain. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Mutiny. There was more bad news for the American cause in January of 1781. 2,500 Pennsylvania soldiers, almost one quarter of the entire Continental Army, mutinied. They did this because Congress had failed to provide them with adequate food, clothing, or pay. Congress again depended on individual states to meet supply quotas and was largely hamstrung because of their lack of power. Pennsylvania soldiers were also upset because they had signed three-year enlistment contracts which supposedly expired on January 1st. But the officers countered that the soldiers had actually enlisted for the duration of the war. As a result, the soldiers announced that they would march on Philadelphia to meet the congressmen face-to-face to see themselves righted. And they explicitly declared that, quote, we are not Arnold's, end quote. Although Washington did not condone this mutiny, he sympathized with their soldiers, and he ordered one of his subordinate officers to listen to their grievances. Congress eventually dispatched a committee to meet them at Trenton to negotiate, and an agreement was worked out where half of the mutineers were discharged and the other half were furloughed until March. Those furloughed soldiers ultimately returned to the army and fought valiantly at Yorktown. The point is that this incident showed, quote, all of the difficulties of managing a war that only about a quarter of the nation's people supported ideologically and even smaller numbers supported materially, end quote. The legacy of this event in Valley Forge is that men like Washington and Hamilton will become nationalists. They will remember these incidents and they will want a stronger federal government leading to the Constitutional Convention. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The French Connection. In May 1781, Washington met Rochambeau in Connecticut, and they both agreed that the French army would come to New York. But without telling Washington, Rochambeau also sent a message to the French naval commander in the Caribbean instructing him to sail to the Chesapeake Bay. 
Washington had been obsessed with striking a decisive blow against the British in New York, but Rochambeau preferred a Chesapeake operation. By July, Rochambeau's army joined the Continental Army in New York, which is interesting considering he knew the French fleet wasn't coming there. But he did so because he slowly convinced Washington that a southern operation should become the focus, and in early August, he requested troop transports to take the joint army south. So, you may ask yourselves, what is the British doing during all this? Well, there is one British army in New York City, and in the south, the British are trying to crush the rebellion, but have largely failed by the summer of 1781. So the main British army in the south, about 7,000 redcoats under General Charles Cornwallis, left the Carolinas and retreated northward to Virginia. In August, Cornwallis's army arrived in Yorktown, and Washington was headed their way. On August 30th, the French fleet arrived off the coast of Yorktown and fought a battle with the British Navy, driving them off. By September, Washington and Rochambeau's armies was arriving outside of Yorktown, and Washington saw the opportunity to entrap Cornwallis's army, and he could hardly contain his excitement. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Battle of Yorktown. On September 15th, the bulk of the Continental and French armies, numbering 16,000 troops, arrived at Yorktown, and Cornwallis's army was trapped. The Franco-American army laid siege to the British for over one month, and on October 14th, under the cover of darkness, the Americans attacked with bayonets and captured a redoubt on the British left, and the leader and first man of this force was Alexander Hamilton, one of Washington's most trusted aides. By October 17th, the British saw the writing on the wall, and Cornwallis surrendered. The formal ceremony occurred two days later on the 19th, when 7,000 redcoats marched out, and legend has it that their band played the song, The World Turned Upside Down. Cornwallis said that he was sick and could not take part in the surrender ceremony, so he sent his subordinate, who tried to surrender his sword to Rochambeau, but the French officer refused, and he forced him to surrender to Washington. Washington was feeling catty, and he did not personally accept it, since Cornwallis had insulted him by not being there, so he had a junior officer accept the sword of surrender instead. So I suppose the point is that even the founder of the country can be petty when he wants to. During the surrender ceremony, several hundred slaves, many of whom suffered from smallpox, who had been under British protection, ran off into the woods, and Washington ordered the slaves be recaptured, and advertisements were published so they could be returned to the rightful owners. So, the point is that Washington helped win the war. He helped found the country, but he was also a product of his time. A slave owner who helped re-enslave escaped freedom fighters in a revolution for freedom and liberty for just a few Americans. Please advance the next slide entitled, War to the Hilt. While Yorktown was the last pitched battle between the American and British forces, Cornwallis's surrender prompted peace negotiations in Paris while the war dragged on across the globe. British redcoats continued fighting the French and Spanish in the Caribbean, while in North America, a brutal civil war erupted between the Patriots, Loyalists, and Native Americans. An American officer later recalled, quote, 
the rage between Whig and Tory ran so high that what was called a Georgia parole and to be shot were synonymous, end quote. The point is that oftentimes, the American Civil War is talked about as a brother's war, but really it's the American Revolution that divided American families, pitting patriot against loyalist, father against son, brother against brother, cousin against cousin. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Treaty of Paris. At the Paris peace negotiations, the American team of Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay performed brilliantly. Congress had instructed them not to do anything without consulting the French, but they negotiated with the British alone anyway. The team hinted to the British that the Franco-American alliance could be weakened so the British would be willing to recognize American independence and extensive boundaries for a new nation in order to undercut such an alliance. The American team then took this preliminary treaty to the French and convinced them to accept it, saying that the Allies must hide their differences from their enemies. So here we see the Americans successfully playing off two great empires against one another. As a result of the Treaty of Paris, Spain got back East and West Florida. The British retained Canada, but ceded all of the Ohio country from the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River to the Americans. But we should note, no Native Americans were allowed to participate in these negotiations. And when one Way chief learned about the treaty, he complained to the British that, quote, In endeavoring to assist you, it seems we have wrought our own ruin. End quote. In September 1783, the Treaty of Paris was signed, and the war was finally over. Please advance to the next slide entitled, American Cincinnatus. For all of his faults, the one thing that Washington was great at was giving up power or not taking more of it. And there are two examples of this in 1783. The first is the Newburgh Conspiracy. From January to March 1783, officers in the Continental Army were upset that they had not been paid in three years. They were also upset that Congress could not get the states to pay for pensions that they were promised. As Congress failed to get the revenue required to pay these men, the officers talked of refusing to disband the army and hoped that Congress would regain their senses and pay. So let's be clear, these American officers are openly talking about a coup d'etat. Now, these officers wanted some generals involved, and some kind of felt out Washington, but it was well known that Washington would not do anything that threatened republicanism. He would not stand for military intimidation of civil authorities. So, the officers decided to hold a meeting in order to elicit General Gates' approval, and when Washington learned of this meeting, he asked it to be rescheduled to the 15th of March. So on the 15th, no one expected Washington to show up. So General Gates is about to start the meeting, and then BAM! In walks George Washington. And everyone is surprised, but Washington can see the anger in their faces. Washington began with an impassioned speech. He asked the officers not to listen to such treasonable talk and to have faith in Congress. Then his big moment came. Washington was about to read a letter from Congress when he reached into his pocket, retrieved his glasses, and said, quote, Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind 
in the service of my country. End quote. In response, the officers, hardened men of war, broke down in tears, realizing all that Washington had sacrificed for them. They then unanimously voted for a declaration of faith in Congress, and Congress realized the problem and soon approved funds for a five-year pension for the officers. So here we see Washington, through his charisma and example, had stopped a potential threat to civil government from military intimidation. Let's put a finer point on this. He stopped a potential coup d'etat from happening. Hell, if he wanted to, he could have been king. He could have been a demagogue, right then and there. But he didn't. Months later, Washington again showed his pension for giving away power. In December 1783, Washington went to Annapolis, where Congress was temporarily meeting, and he surrendered his sword. Quote, Having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action. I here offer my commission and take my leave of all the enjoyments of public life. End quote. Thus, Washington became known as the American Cincinnatus. For those of you who don't know, Cincinnatus was a Roman farmer during the Roman Republic, and when a great crisis arose, he left his farm, was given dictatorial powers, and led the Republic to victory. Upon his success, he went to the Senate, renounced his powers, and returned to his farm in peace. So as we can see, despite Washington's many faults, his example kept this nation a republic by constantly giving up power when he could have been king. King George III ultimately said of Washington's resignation, quote, It placed him in a light of the most distinguished of any man living. End quote. That's pretty high praise indeed. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Liberty's Exiles. So what happened to all of those loyalists? Remember, historians estimate that between one-fifth to one-third of Americans remained loyal to Great Britain. And this was a diverse group. They included recent immigrants and Mayflower descendants alike. They could be royal officials, as well as bakers, carpenters, tailors, and printers. They were Anglican ministers, as well as Methodists and Quakers, cosmopolitan Bostonians, and backcountry farmers in the Carolinas. So why did these people remain loyal? for a variety of reasons. Some had an ideological commitment to the king, or others had religious beliefs about commitment to the king. Some were afraid of persecution. Others believed that the colonies were strategically and economically better off in the British army, and some were self-interested, like runaway slaves and Native Americans. In total, about 20,000 loyalists fought in the British army, and thousands more served and local militias. About 60,000 loyalists left the United States at the end of the war, and they took with them 15,000 enslaved African Americans. This diaspora went to England, Canada, Florida, the Caribbean, Sierra Leone, India, and Australia. And wherever they went, they took with them American ideas about liberty and freedom, which would lead to much consternation by the British government for years to come. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Consequences. American independence came at a great human cost, with 25,000 American military deaths making about 1% of the population. And this is going to be the highest proportion of deaths in any American war besides the Civil War. 
It also is one of America's longest wars before Vietnam and the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. It is also a big monetary cost, and debts for Congress and the states would last for years to come. The governments had issued paper securities, basically IOUs, and had promised to pay the soldiers later. But how will these debts be paid? Well, that will ultimately lead to the Constitutional Convention. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Liberty's Daughters. In the 1795 Columbia Commencement, the Speaker said, quote, Let us then figure to ourselves the accomplished woman, surrounded by a sprightly band from the babe that imbibes the nutritive flute to the generous youth just ripening into manhood, and the lovely virgin blessed with a miniature of maternal excellence. Let us contemplate the mother, distributing the mental nourishment to the fond smiling circle. See under her cultivating hand, reason assuming the reins of government, and knowledge increasing gradually to her beloved pupils. The genius of liberty hovers triumphant over the glorious scene. Fame with her golden trumpet spreads wide and well-earned honors of the fair. Contemplate the rising glory of Confederate America. Consider that your exertions can best secure, increase, and perpetuate it. The solidarity and stability of the liberties of your country rest with you, since liberty is never sure till virtue reigns triumphant. While you thus keep our country virtuous, you maintain its independence and ensure its prosperity. End quote. Historians have called this new gender role for women Republican motherhood. So basically to unpack all that, in order to ensure liberty, women have to teach why the republic is good. They have to teach while freedom is good, while virtue is good, that you don't want to become licentiousness, you don't want to sin too much. That way, you keep the country prosperous. So in order to be good republican mothers, women would now need more education. And one of the big gains for women in the 1780s and 90s was the founding of more schools that accepted women. But let's note, this is for elite women, and those that we have the written evidence for. They certainly did not acquire new political equality with men after the revolution, and most did not want it. What they wanted was greater equality in the private sphere. But we should also note that in the aftermath of the revolution, New Jersey temporarily flirted with the right to vote for women. Now really, it does not last a decade, but it still illustrates that the ideas of the revolution attempted to push back the accepted gender norms. And one place where we see the most gain for women is with family planning, because birth rates decline as women take greater control over their reproduction. And this is a true sign of the increased power of women in the home and the family. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Consequences for the Enslaved. All that talk about liberty undermined the institution of slavery, especially in the North. In 1775, the Quakers in Philadelphia formed the world's first anti-slavery society. By the early 19th century, every state north of the Chesapeake had passed some kind of emancipation plan. Northern ships and money had been critical to the slave trade. And in the 1770s, there were only several hundred free blacks in the North, but by 1810, there were almost 50,000. Yet, 
there were also 27,000 enslaved people in the so-called free states. And northern emancipation, especially in New York and New Jersey, was often a gradual, tortuous process. And in fact, there were slaves in New Jersey and New York at the onset of the Civil War. Slavery, of course, will remain entrenched in the southern states. And South Carolina even used slaves as compensation for white volunteers in the army. And we have to ask ourselves, was there a missed opportunity to end slavery in the United States? Well, the example of the Marquis de Lafayette suggests so. He initially did not oppose slavery when he came to America, but his battlefield experiences with African Americans profoundly affected him. In February of 1783, Lafayette sent Washington a congratulatory letter and proposed that the two initiate a plan to free their slaves. Lafayette wanted to buy land on the coast of French Guinea, where the slaves would be settled in preparation for freedom. And Lafayette told Washington, quote, Such an example of yours might render it a general practice, end quote. Washington liked the plan, and the two met at Mount Vernon in August 1784 to discuss it. However, nothing ever came of it. Washington did draft a public statement that he wanted to read when he became president that declared he was going to free some of his slaves. But his wife objected, and Washington never read the statement, though he did free some of his slaves in his will. Can you imagine? What if Washington had freed his slaves after the revolution? Would others have followed suit? Thus, we see the power of contingency. One event being critical for the next event to occur. And it also illustrates the complexity of Washington. A slave owner, a founder of the country, a man who gave power away, but also a person who enslaved human beings and profited from their labor. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Egalitarianism. As a result of the American Revolution, there was a growing spirit of equality in the United States moving forward. A Virginian gentleman in a tavern noticed some farmers came in. They were spitting, and they were pulling off their muddy boots. And he later recalled, quote, The spirit of independence was converted into equality, and everyone who bore arms esteems himself upon a footing with his neighbors. No doubt each of these men considers himself, in every respect, my equal. End quote. So to this Virginian, he does not like egalitarianism. He does not like people thinking they are as good as him because they are poor and he is rich. What we see here is the decline of deference and hat-tipping. Commoners are going to demand to be called Mr. and Mrs., titles that had previously belonged only to the elites. People began to brag about their humble origins, of making it rich on their own effort and being self-made men rather than being born to a wealthy father, as was previously the custom. In addition, in the aftermath of the revolution, we see more schools, newspapers, and humanitarian societies established, because Americans want to remake themselves in the world. And this is a big part of what historian Gordon Wood calls the radicalism of the American Revolution. Going forward, your birth, your breeding, your family heritage, no longer matters as much as your work ethic and virtue. As a result, Many elites will grow disillusioned by this change, and John Adams will declare, quote, the spirit of liberty spread where it was not intended, end quote. Thus, the elites will try to check the surge of egalitarianism and popular participation in government, ultimately culminating in the Constitutional Convention.
Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.